0: Hi, folks. This is Andrew Stelzer. If you get our program through iTunes, please go there and rate us so that other people can find the show. And if you're on our website, radioproject.org, please click on the Donate button so that you can support this work and help us keep
1: making great shows like this one. All right. Thanks. Here's the show. On this edition of Making Contact... You'll hear excerpts from the documentary Spies of Mississippi, the real story of government spying on activists during the civil rights era.
0: Within three to four years of its being formed, the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission transforms itself into a full-blown spy agency with a whole network of investigators and agents to go around the state, exploring things that were going to possibly change what people euphemistically called the Mississippi way of life.
1: Imagine being black in the 50s. You return home from defending your country to segregated Mississippi, where you are denied admissions to Mississippi Southern College because of the color of your skin. You publish a letter protesting the racist laws of your state, only to be put under surveillance by a state commission that slaps false charges against you and gets you in prison until your last days. That's the story of civil rights activist Clyde Kennard, who was released just before his death in 1963 he wouldn't be pardoned until 50 years later. The Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, or Subcom, performed this type of state-sanctioned persecution and murder. Although this took place more than 50 years ago, one can draw parallels to the several executive orders and policies that target vulnerable communities today. Muslims, undocumented immigrants, African Americans, and LGBTQ people. Spies of Mississippi, a documentary directed and produced by Don Porter and executive produced by Lux TV and Martina Hallbridge takes a close look at the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, an agency established shortly after the Brown versus Board of Education decision, to ensure that the state would remain segregated. SUBCOM coordinated its activities with members of the Ku Klux Klan, a domestic terrorist organization that illegally surveilled the activities of civil rights workers and prevented attempts to desegregate the state and register blacks to vote.
2: The political atmosphere in Mississippi in the middle 1950s was beginning to change very drastically.
3: By 1956, Brown versus Board of Education had been passed the great Supreme Court ruling that said that you couldn't discriminate within education on the basis of race. The legislature of Mississippi was almost 100 percent segregationists and many of them rabid segregationists at the time who felt that the struggle was starting to turn against the state and that the federal government was gaining power to enforce civil rights laws And they create a special agency with the direct mission to preserve segregation. In the
2: legislature of 1956, one of the major bills that was passed during that session was a bill to create something called the Sovereignty Commission.
4: I'm sure that you will not fail to enact an appropriate state sovereignty bill which will enable us during the next two years to maintain a successful fight for preserving the separation of the races in this state. At
2: that time, it seemed to be a harmless kind of legislation. It was more like a white chamber of commerce. Then we began to ask questions about it, about how that bill could be abused. passed, however, and was enacted by the legislature and signed by Governor Coleman and set in motion.
5: This is Mississippi, the central state, the heart of the South.
0: It started out as a public relations campaign with films like Message from Mississippi, letting um, the world know that people like the system of segregation in Mississippi and that nothing should ever change it.
5: Out of the statewide pattern of segregation, mutual respect and cooperation among the races has arisen a productive, law-abiding way of life. Reverend J.W. Jones, colored pastor of New Albany and editor of a statewide colored newspaper, has this to say. We have far less crime in our race In Mississippi in proportion to the population than in any state in the nation. I believe this is because of the way of life in Mississippi.
6: They sent out mailings, they sent out speakers, they invited newspaper people into the state, talked to them, tried to persuade them that you know all is well here. We got some good black people and we treat them well. The sovereignty
2: commission became an an instrument of state power in enforcing segregation.
3: It's initially a small agency under the control of the governor that will keep track of these civil rights organizations.
7: We were mounting what I think of as an earned insurgency in this country and in Mississippi. I think that earned for us the right to go to the rest of the country and say we need uh, the rest of the country to take a look at what's going on in Mississippi.
6: If you registered to vote, you immediately became an enemy of the state. If you rented from a white person, you were kicked out. If you worked for a white person, you were fired. And yet we got thousands of people to take on an entire state that was committed to an apartheid system that would make South Africa blush.
2: It was the beginning of the so-called civil rights era. That's when the tensions began to rise over what was coming, what people thought was coming down the road.
0: Within three to four years of its being formed, the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission transforms itself into a full-blown spy agency with a whole network of investigators and agents to go around the state exploring things that were going to possibly change what people euphemistically called the Mississippi way of life.
3: The Sovereignty Commission spy program actually started at a very small level. It's a couple of agents, usually former state police investigators, even former FBI agents, who are highly skilled investigators, and they're at the core. I'll never forget finding the file on Clyde Kennard, the young man whose great crime against the state of Mississippi was to apply to go to college.
4: Clyde Kennard was a Korean War veteran an upstanding citizen who had studied uh, in the northern universities and uh, who was very ambitious and a profoundly decent and, and good guy. In the 50s, Clyde Kennard tried to go to the University of Southern Mississippi.
3: In the 1950s, the few African Americans in the South who were able to enroll in college could only attend black schools. Kennard's application to attend Mississippi Southern was seen as an attack on segregation and set into motion a swift response from the state. His application was given to the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, an organization few Mississippians even knew existed. They did a report that tracked his background growing up in Mississippi, his time spent with his family in Chicago, his time in the military, his time at the University of Chicago, and his time back in Mississippi helping his ailing mother on her chicken farm. With multiple agents tracking everybody in his background, they couldn't come up with anything that could undercut
4: his application to go to college. Police with the cooperation of the State Sovereignty Commission planted stolen chicken feed from the county co-op. But some about 20 bucks worth of chicken feed were planted on his farm. He didn't steal them. Everybody knows that. But he was arrested for that and he was put in prison for seven years. He was sentenced to Parchment
3: Penitentiary, the worst prison at that time, probably in the country. Let him out a couple months before he died of cancer, but only because he was terminal. That Sovereignty Commission did all it could to hold back
2: progress in our state and basically discourage any kind of efforts to bring black and white people together.
7: There were rumors that the white car parked outside the gate of Tougaloo College was taking down the license plate numbers of everyone, black or white, who went to an interracial meeting. It turns out that is what was happening. People would then be afraid to come to another meeting.
8: One of the things that they were really known for doing was getting the license plate tags, names and addresses of people who were attending civil rights meetings and giving them to newspaper editors who would publish the names and addresses of these people, which is an incredibly effective terror tactic um, because they obviously were, were subject to night raids by the Klan or by other terrorist groups or by individuals who were just bent on white supremacy. So
3: other black leaders knew that there was something going on, that these white agents who were showing up at their meetings, taking down their license numbers, were part of something. But they didn't know it was the Sovereignty Commission.
4: The future of the United States of America may well be determined here in Mississippi for it is here that democracy faces its most serious challenge. Can we have government in Mississippi which represents all of the people? This is a question which must be answered in the affirmative if these United States are to continue to give moral leadership to the free world. There is no case in history
3: where the Caucasian
4: race has survived social integration. We will not drink from the cup of genocide.
3: And just over the period of a little over two weeks, you've had 50 major demonstrations across the country in all parts of the United States, not being created by the federal government. they have being created by people who are dissatisfied at being treated
8: as second-class citizens. And this is the difficulty. We have to do something about it. We have to deal with it. By 1960 in the Deep South, the sit-in movement has just exploded. The Sovereignty Commission sees this happening in this rapid development and growth of an organized civil rights movement where you do have people who call themselves civil rights activists. And so the Sovereignty Commission has to ramp up its own efforts to defy the civil rights movement and these activists.
4: The State Sovereignty Commission really assumed its mature and most malignant form after 1960, after Ross Barnett was governor of the state. The agency really became sort of the Stasi of of, of
5: Mississippi under Ross Barnett. They double the number of spies they have themselves. They decide they're going to try and reach out. Well, how can we do this? these detective agencies kind of volunteer their services.
3: These private detective agencies had both white investigators and black investigators.
8: They had four or five um, detective agencies that they hired to help do the work of the Sovereignty Commission to investigate these people, to attend civil rights meetings. So the black
3: detective Became the new model, and they could keep the payments to the detective agencies hidden. And certainly, the role of the black detective would be very difficult for anyone to trace.
4: Spies.
2: Let us know what these marches were going to do, where they were going, what towns they were going to, to and solving the commission. We're trying to keep up with the invasion from the north. The march is coming down through here, you know. And we pretty well did.
3: There's 160,000 pages of spy reports talking about tracking Medgar Evers, talking about preparing for an arrival of Martin Luther King into the state of Mississippi getting information in advance about what his route
8: would be and what the strategy would be to undercut him. In many cases, as it pertains to specific civil rights events or organizations, how little the Sovereignty Commission actually knew compared to what it thought it knew. Uh, and oftentimes that was because of the ability of civil rights activists to, uh, to funnel the information that they wanted to funnel back to the Sovereignty Commission through these people who they knew were uh, black informants.
3: The Sovereignty Commission saw itself as working within the boundaries of state government, knowing that the mission of state government was to preserve segregation and was rooted in white supremacy. So the Sovereignty Commission was supplying information to the police agencies, the state police, the county sheriffs, without fully realizing that the Ku Klux Klan was on the ascendancy and that its strategy was to infiltrate the county sheriff's departments.
4: The Klan had more or less disappeared in the 1920s and hadn't been much through the 30s and 40s and 50s, but it came back with a vengeance, of course, in the 1960s and thoroughly terrorized the state with its campaign of bombing.
3: But is it balanced where in our communities are jeopardized by such sex-crazed, idiotic mobs as the Deacons or the NAACP. I say, ladies and
5: gentlemen, we've got to make our stand. And I say that it is not violence when we protect ourselves. The Sovereignty Commission, like the Klan, viewed Freedom Summer as an invasion. I mean, they basically, thought, we're under siege, this is war.
7: The training in Ohio that we were doing for the young people that was coming for the 1964 Summer Project lasts for two weeks. The training had to do with preparing them for coming into Mississippi. Those three things you needed to be prepared for was to be beaten, to be put in jail, and to be killed. And if you're not prepared for all three of those, we won't hold it against you if you decide not to come.
5: So when the Sovereignty Commission comes over and begins spying on Mickey Schwerner back in spring of 64, they're sharing that information with the Meridian Police Department. Well, the Meridian Police Department, according to, I've talked directly to the officers themselves, more than half the police force over there were probably Klansmen.
7: Cheney, Goodman, and Swerner went to investigate the burning of a church, firebombing of a church.
8: So the Sovereignty Commission was clearly responsible for funneling information about the whereabouts of Goodman, Schorner and Chaney that day that they were investigating the church burning to local officials um, in Neshoba County in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Those local officials, the sheriff's office in particular, would arrest Goodman, Schorner and Chaney that day, take them to the jail, where that night they would be taken out of the jail and would disappear. And for the next several weeks, there was a massive manhunt looking for these disappeared
1: civil rights activists. You're listening to Spies of Mississippi on Making Contact. Directed and produced by Don Porter and executive produced by Lux TV and Martina Hallbridge. To watch the full film or find out more about the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, check out our website at radioproject.org sign up for our podcast, or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now back to the film, Spies of Mississippi.
2: We know that three young men disappeared some time ago, and we know what happened to civil rights workers. We know what happened to Negroes in Mississippi when they disappeared. Sometimes you find them in the river, sometimes you find them hanging from trees, and sometimes you don't find them. I have no reason to believe that these people have been killed. And
4: uh, we don't have any information with the state police that would justify any such uh,
5: conjecture. So you have the governor of Mississippi, Senator Eastland, they're all coming out publicly and saying, oh, this is a hoax. They're probably down there with Castro smoking cigars and Cuba and, you know, all this kind of talk time that uh, Governor Johnson said that he said that in Yoshoba County and where he was standing when he claimed it was a hoax he was standing literally like less than a few miles from where the bodies were buried 44 days later the FBI gets tipped off and they they do find where the bodies are buried, and they do dig up the bodies.
8: There was a a map that can be found in the Sovereignty Commission files today that indicates the direct location of the bodies. It's a hand-drawn map that shows them buried underneath this earthen dam. It, it, It is clearly more information that indicates that, again, the Sovereignty Commission knew exactly what had happened, knew where these guys were, and knew knew that they were dead long before this several-week, multi-month search for their bodies um, had concluded.
5: When those bodies were dug up, then suddenly there was no hiding place anymore. There was no hiding place for the Klan anymore. You know, the FBI was getting involved in the case. They were already involved in the case, but they were gonna pursue the case. This one was not gonna be ignored.
6: This country could not really reconcile. Why do three young people get killed for trying to register black people to vote, even in Mississippi?
5: When Agent X was working out of Canton, Mississippi, he reported the license plate off the station wagon that the three civil rights workers were later driving.
3: While the identity of Agent X was never officially revealed, a number of activists went through those files and asked the question, who was at these meetings that were compromised? Who was there when we were talking about these things that ended up in a file of the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission? And through a process of connecting the dots, it all led to one man, R.L.
6: Bolden. They claimed it I was a spy. That, that was a lie. I wasn't no spy. I was worse than shocked. I didn't realize that kind of information was out there because it wasn't true. It's possible that the detective agency was passing on information.
7: I knew R.L. very well. He was the vice president of the state NAACP, and he was intimately involved with us and we didn't have any signs or indication that he was to the contrary. It was only through the diligence of the late, late Senator Henry Kirksey who began to pinpoint things to determine that he was working with the, the State Cyber Commission and that had to do with uh, Him digging off into the files and looking at reports and seeing reports being given about certain specific meetings and him recollecting who was at the meeting. And everybody that attended that meeting were mentioned except one person that he knew was there. And that's when he came to the conclusion that since this is a pattern, that one person who is not mentioned at these meetings that I know was there have to be the one that's submitting a report.
0: Governor Johnson realizes that the Sovereignty Commission is indirectly responsible for the death of the three civil rights workers in the summer of 1964. And he stops regular meetings of the Sovereignty Commission. One member of the Sovereignty Commission, Horace Harnett, writes to the governor, and the first line of this letter, is Mississippi going to have a Sovereignty Commission? He's basically appealing to the governor to make sure that this commission remains active because we still have to stop the forces that these outsiders are bringing into our state. And at that point, they do realize that it's crumbling and they're trying to do whatever they can to prop it up.
5: The death knell, I think, for the Sovereignty Commission wasn't until the Voting Rights Act of 65. And when the Voting Rights Act finally passed in 65, That was it. I mean, they saw the writing on the wall. They couldn't do anything from that point forward to interfere with voting rights. In fact, they recognized what trouble they were in because they had these memos about, okay, let's gather up all the records that have to do with thwarting voting rights and destroy them.
3: It was decided that the commission would be eliminated, its budget would be eliminated, and his files would be stored in a secret place for 50 years. There were so many state legislators. There were so many powerful people in the state of Mississippi who were in those files for supporting the activities of the commission. So they were scared to death that that would become known in their lifetime.
4: It's important that we study the past, particularly I think it's important that Mississippi have some kind of truth and reconciliation, that the white South have some kind of truth and reconciliation. process we largely bypassed. We changed, but we never looked back. We never tried to understand the enormity of our crimes against our own citizens. We didn't have that moment of, re- of reflection that at least South Africa tried. Um, that's, I think, to our eternal shame.
0: I grew up in a state that up until probably after 9-11 was was the largest domestic spying operation this country had ever known. When I read about the Patriot Act being developed and actually starting to, to look at library records, I flashed back to the Sovereignty Commission files when they were checking to see what people were actually subscribing to, which meant what were they reading, what was coming into their mailboxes. Whenever. Someone's civil liberties are being infringed upon.
1: No one's really free. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. To find out more about this show, go to our website at radioproject.org. Subscribe to our podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Special thanks to the film's producers, Don Porter, Looks TV, and Martina Hallbridge. This edition of Making Contact was produced by Anita Johnson. Lisa Rutman is our executive director. The Making Contact producers are Monica Lopez, Marie Che, and RJ Lazada. Sabine Blazon is the audience engagement director, and Vera Tycholsker is the development associate. And I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.